Hello, this is Earl, and this is Esoteric Island Discs. Our castaway today is Ben Chasney, a man behind a musical project that's been going on for a long time called Six Organs of Admittance, and a bunch of other weird and wonderful musical projects, which we'll hopefully be able to discuss as we go along today. Ben, thanks for coming on the island. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. We're here to explore your interesting record collection and also explore your musical creations over the years. Before we get started, it might it might be good to ask you just a kind of bog standard and maybe irritating, but also interesting question, I think, which is, uh, how'd you get into music? How did you start doing Six Organs of Admittance? Hmm. Well, Six Organs would come quite a bit after I started doing music. And then it, it was kind of standard starting in music at the age of 14 or 15, playing bass, kind of more punky bands. And then, yeah, sort of made the transition to six organs around when I was about 20, I think, which is when I picked up the acoustic guitar and started uh, doing more finger-picking style. And uh, the early six organ stuff, I think the, the newer stuff that I haven't heard so much of is... Um... It's all over the place in terms of sonic repertoire. You've got electric guitars, you've got lots of distortion, lots of drums, all kinds of stuff. But the, the early stuff that I've heard is layered, finger-picking, droney stuff on a four-track, seemingly. Like nice lo-fi sound, nice tape yeah. compression. And, yeah. and you started doing that in the 90s. So yeah. and, and now that's almost there's almost like a, a, a tailor-made sort of market for that of people who are looking for kind of authenticity and, and lo-fi rootsy stuff. But at the time right. that was completely against the, the flow in, ter- in, in terms of commercial stuff, obviously people were recording yeah. in their bedrooms all the time, oh, yeah. but no one was making a career out of it. No, I don't think it had a, it wasn't known as a sound like now it's this, if you lo-fi bedroom, those are all signifiers for more of um, a genre than, actual sound i feel um but yeah I'm, i record on a four track and i didn't have any money so i wasn't going to go in the studio and i was putting out my own records so it all made sense and at the time there was a pretty healthy underground um of uh musicians that were having their records distributed um through uh, smaller distributors more like zines that would come in the mail mm. and i, I just kind of wanted to be a part of that and that's how it all kind of started, really. Cool. I guess the the end of the glory days of tape trading and um... yeah, and the, you know, people were buying records. I mean, there used there used to be a saying. It sounds insane now, which was if you press up five hundred records, you, they will. Well, I've destroyed the saying. It's no longer saying, but it was an idea that if you pressed up five hundred records, they would go. You could there would be at least five hundred people who would be interested enough to explore things that would buy it. Um, now that sounds impossible. Now, like if you sold 500 LPs, you're doing, you know, you're doing all right. Um, but back then, so it allowed for more experimentation. You could, if you believed in yourself and you trusted in your own music, you, you could do 500, 300, 500 LPs, get them out to the distributors and people were just collecting strange music. They just wanted to hear new weird stuff. So it was a nice time. Mm. All right. What's your first track? My first track is Towns Van Zant Rex's Blues. What's this song all about? Why do you like this song? Well, you know, and, and the version that I really like is the version from Live at the Old Quarter, which was a live um, record that he did. 
I, don't, I like it stripped down. Um, one of the reasons why I picked this is because it's, it's a song that I have had on repeat ever since I've heard it. I can just have it on repeat. I never get tired of it. So I figured that was good. And there's one other singer-songwriter on um, this list that's the same reason why I picked him. And I can just I just don't get tired of it. But in terms of um, the content of the song, it's, uh, to me, the song is very much about luck and fate. And I, I thought that this would be a good one for the esoteric island to sit on because the first verse of it, he has a line that says, she'll lead you down through misery. And if you don't pay attention to the rest of the song, you might think he's singing about a person. What he does in the second verse, he immediately starts singing about gambling. And before the song starts, on the live version, he talks about his friend Rex, who the song is named after Rex, Rex's blues. He talks about what bad luck he has and says, you know, he has such bad luck that if you cut cards with Rex and you get a three, he'll get a two. So what he's doing is he's, you know, he's framing, sandwiching that first verse, which sounds like it's about a person in between two ideas about fate and chance. And then everything just kind of rides on the, maybe, maybe the darker side of fate when you find yourself down there, you know? So I thought that would probably have been a pretty good song to listen to if you're, I don't know how I got on this island, but I imagine that I'd be listening to that song a lot. You know? Yeah, no one ever knows how they get there. It's, it's never explored. <laughs> All right, Rex's Blues live version, Towns Van Zandt. Let me play this tune. Uh, this song's about uh, this good friend of mine named uh, Rex Bell, who used to own half this place. Uh, it's called Rex's Blues. cut cards with Rex and you get a three, he'll get a two, you know what I mean? Ride the blue wind high and free She'll lead you down through misery Leave you low, come time to go Alone and low, as low can be Well, if I had a nickel, I'd find a game If I want a dollar, I'd make it rain If it rained an ocean, I'd drink it dry And lay me down dissatisfied It's legs to walk and thoughts to fly Eyes to laugh and lips to cry A restless tongue to classify All born to grow and grown to die Tell my baby I said so long Tell my mother I did no wrong Tell my brother to watch his own And 
tell my friends to mourn me now I'm chained upon the face of time Feeling full of foolish rhyme There ain't no dark till something shines I'm bound to leave the dark behind We'll ride the blue end high and free She'll lead you down through misery Leave you low, come time to go Alone and low as low can be Alone and low as low can be Towns Van Zandt, Rex's Blues I love Towns Van Zandt as well. And one thing I love about him is that he, he, he strikes a really nice balance between narrative telling a story, um, but also tunefulness and just kind of, it, it just sounds nice and really nice guitar playing and nice songwriting and sort of solid songwriting that takes you where you want to go. It's very easy when you're, when you're doing that kind of narrative folk revival, folk music, to yeah. go just so wordy that the music is yeah. almost drowned out by this kind of, you're trying to follow what the guy's saying, if you know what I mean. But he, he gets yeah. a really nice balance. He does. I think he has a really nice balance between the poetic and the visionary. So he's not just working with pure words and pure poet, which I would tend to, obviously this is up for argument, I would tend, personally, I would tend to put someone like Bob Dylan, less of a visionary, more of in the poet side. You know, he's wordplay and how they come together. Not that he's not working with images, but then I would put someone like Towns and like some somebody like Neil Young, very visionary, where they don't, it feels like, and Neil has said this, he's, when he says, I don't know where it's, I don't even know what I'm singing about. I just smoke a J and the pictures come to me or something like that, you know? He would probably be more in a visionary than the than the poetic and it's someone like towns is almost right in the middle yeah which i i like very much yeah he he's always been a favorite of the cognoscenti but he's never quite hit the level of fame that maybe he deserves next to the name the kind of names you're you're mentioning that everyone knows even if they hate 60s folk music they everyone knows who bob dylan is and and who uh neil young is probably who leonard cohen is that's your kind of short list but there's like so much cool stuff going on in that scene yeah yeah now your music has been called folk of some kind by the genre hounds out there <laughs> the genre hounds you know what i mean can i start using that no i love that i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna start using that a lot cool um the genre hound. oh the, i like that term i'm gonna yeah all right the there genre you go hounds. yeah yeah there you go especially especially nowadays when everyone's so obsessed with bloody uh identity which i think is just another kind of genre houndism if you ask me, right. but anyhow, like, how- well, yeah, I don't know how far off on a tangent, wanted, but I would like to say one thing that I wish people would, particularly writers is, is would kind of figure out is the difference between a genre and a scene. It seems like they're always getting them confused. They say if there's a group of people that know each other and interact with each other. That's a little more of a scene than a genre. Right. Whereas a, a genre would be more about sound or, you know, the horizon of expectation would be the genre, not particularly uh, the inner 
connectiveness of the people and uh, you know how they're influencing each other. There's two different things, and I see it confused all the time. That's a really good point. Um, it makes me think of the Beats, right? Who are a bunch of writers and experimental literary guys who have basically nothing in common across the board, right. except that they all knew each other, and someone decided, some genre hound of the day decided to call them the Beat Generation, and therefore the Beats—they're the Beats—and and people can be like, "I'm really into the Beats." It's like that's interesting because they're all really different. What is it that you yeah. love about Burroughs and Kerouac? You know, right. Um, right, right. And also from my field, by which I mean intellectual history, history of ideas, that tendency to try to look at historical scenes and be like, ah, the school of Athens or ah, the Sufi school of Shiraz or whatever. It's often bollocks. It's often there's no right. school involved at all, but there's a bunch of people who knew each other and they were, they were riffing on each other for sure. I'd say that Towns nails that with a line in his song where he says, a restless tongue to classify. Boom. So there you go. Now then. You may not have a genre, and more power to you, but you do have a name, which is Six Organs of Admittance. Mm -hmm. um, and the number six comes up in your work a lot. But before we even get into arithmology, which we may well do <laughs> by the end of this, what is a, even one organ of admittance? Never mind oh, six. That's a, that's a good question. Um, there are certain things with the band that probably go back to when I was younger and maybe a little more prone to, um, you know, I thought it was being psychedelic, but now being older thinking, well, you, that's maybe, a, maybe you're being, I don't know how to put this. I may not call myself that band name now. I think, um, you, you know, I read it as a young man as a term in Buddhism. And I thought, oh, this is psychedelic or something like that. Well, it really made sense to me. It was supposed to mean uh, the five senses and the soul. So I read this in a book about hermits, about Taoist and Buddhist hermits, and it just struck me as a phrase. And I just put, I just liked it. And I've kept it. I've thought about changing it sometimes because mm, I didn't want to have such borrowing overtones, but I've, I've kept it to kind of remind myself of things. So that's what, that's a long and rambling explanation for it, which is to say I'm not super stoked on the name now, but kind of stuck with it. At least I didn't call myself like Diarrhea Planet or you know, something like that. Or, which, or <laughs> Schwepp. Schwepp is pretty good. I like Schwepp. Luckily, Schwepp is a very searchable term because the only other thing that the sort of search engines confuse it with is sheep. And because sheep huh. is not such a popular search term, I guess, if people search for <laughs> Schwepp, they end up finding <laughs> Schwepp quite easily. And um, if people search for sheep, do they find Schwepp? I hope so. Wouldn't that be cool? That'd be incredible. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. I, know, I know a lot of shepherds. Um, and uh, I'm a big fan of the Dartmoor Whiteface, which is our local, one of our local breeds that is um, in danger mm. of dying out. So, uh, full support to the hill farmers of Dartmoor. And thank you for filling us in on the six organs of admittance. I can dig it. Symbolically, there's a lot to chew on there. You know, it's, it's, at, least yeah. it's not a, at least it's not boring. I know where it came from. And now, for me, it can become dynamic for me. And I can start changing what I, I mean pretty soon after I called myself that I would change it a little more and get a little more Henry Corbin and say that it was uh you know the the sixth um organ was the creative imagination you know I started saying that a lot in earlier interviews rather than the soul um it, it, can, it can change around and now it's just now it's just a name for the music I do 
Speaking of music, what's your second track? The second track is uh, Morton Feldman's Triadic Memories. And um, I said a performer, but really it could be any. I'm not, I'm not a classical music uh, completist or would even. I've heard a few versions and this just seemed like one I kind of end up going to. Aki Takahashi performs right. Triadic Memories by Morton Feldman.
Morton Feldman, the beginning of triadic memories. Um, what do you like about Morton Feldman? I love Morton Feldman. I find him incredibly accessible and easy to listen to, but also oh, yeah. uh, worth going back to again and again because he's super complex he's, and great. I love him. He's fantastic. He um, he has a sense of humor also in his interviews that is just – I love – I just love him as a person. Like, I mean, from everything I've read, you know, it's great. He, there's a really good book called, um, I think it's Give My Regards to, I think, 8th Street. That's a collection of his essays and interviews. Scanning my bookshelf. That's great. And also there there were these radio shows he did with John Cage in, I think it was like 67. Wow. Um, was that just like half an hour of silence with a little percussion? <laughs> it's, it, there's four of them. And it's just them riffing on ideas, sometimes talking about music, sometimes not. Sometimes in one of the episodes, Cage just starts giggling. And you, and you know Cage is into mushrooms. And I, I've tried to, try to, like, were mushrooms in the, the scene in 67? I was trying to figure out, like, when did, because I'm, in my mind, I'm like, oh, Cage is on mushrooms right now. Because he's just giggling and cracking up. And Morton Feldman's making these great statements, like, um, he makes even one of he's like, oh, you know, I thought I was done. I, I, I was like, I can't compose anymore. And I realized, you know, that's it. It's over. And then I realized, no, I just needed air conditioning, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And he's so, he's so good. And I think he, I, oh, I don't know if he said Mozart or Bach, but he also has a quote where he says, if, if I only had a comfortable chair, I could compose, you know, on the level of, it's either Mozart or Bach or something like that. And and I relate to all of these things. Not that I feel that way, but I like his state of mind where he felt like he wanted to crack that joke. Yeah. So one of the great uh, American um, 20th century composers who pretty much everyone takes him seriously as one of the big boys, no matter how highfalutin and snooty your classical music avant-garde scene is, Everyone's got some time for Morton Feldman, um, yeah, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I highly recommend the uh, the radio shows, and they're on. I think it's on archive.org. I think it's pretty easy to get mm-hmm. um, or to find online, and um, they're really entertaining and really inspirational. Actually, they and they seem like they're pretty good buds. Yeah. So it just sounds like two friends riffing and cracking up and making each other. I mean, Morton Feldman is definitely the comedian trying to, you know, make Cage crack up. And uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. We'll link to those. Now, you've been making music for ages now. As six organs since, I think, 1998. Yeah. Which is pretty great and pretty um, impressive. But you've also branched out a lot and collaborated with other people and done other projects and stuff like that. What do you What do you have going on at the moment, musically? Yeah, right now I'm known a collaboration with Shackleton. Ah, so cool. That's kind of what I've been doing. So that's yes. happening. Yeah, we've been working on that. Wicked. So um, he he's pretty fast with stuff, and I I am like a sloth, so I will send him a vocal track, and he will get it done and send it back to me the next day and say, all right, let's go. And I'll be like, oh, man, it usually takes me a month, you know, to do a vocal. Okay, I'll get So, But it's good for me. It's good for me to, um, to have somebody that I really... And are you doing guitar as well? Mm, guitar. 
So guitar and vocals. Are we looking at some drony? Um, because one one of the things Sam loves to do, uh, which isn't easy or normal in electronic music, in the, especially in this in the Berlin scene where he lives, where everything is basically four to the floor techno of right. one sort or another, is have often like four four with some six going over the top. So you get these cool yeah. sort of. Um, uh, you know, like when you have the two windscreen wipers on your car and they're out of sync and yeah, then yeah. that moment comes where they're in sync and yeah. then they go out of sync again. Yeah. That kind of effect, yeah. which is really cool. So are you doing kind of like finger-picked guitar to a certain rhythm and then he's bringing other rhythms and it's all kind of interlocking? Yeah, he is a master of rhythm. It's incredible. I, that's one of the most fun uh, things about it. Also, his sense of bass because six organs doesn't usually have a lot of bass, although I like to listen to music with bass. Mm. So this has been a lot of fun to be able to make music with bass like that. Yeah. And he's doing some really cool things. Um, he's, he's making it so far. What he's done um, with it is that he's kind of taken a really early sound of six organs, which was very influenced by cult acid folk sort of music from the late 60s and 70s. And somehow, even though I was influenced by that stuff early on, he somehow has created even more of a cult, acid folk kind of thing. And I, I really love it. And it was not something I expected it to sound like as when we first started working on projects. So it's been a lot of fun. All right. So Ben, your, your third track is one that I've never heard before. This is Fuchitsusha, the first, yes. the fourth song from their first disc of uh, Live 2. Live 2. Now, this is one of Keiji Haino's projects, and I do know him, and I know that he is a Japanese avant-gardist, and it seems to me that if you are in a Japanese avant-garde band, you never title anything. So if a track gets a title, it's something like 1.6 or something like that. Anyway, so <laughs> yeah. fittingly, we don't, don't really have a title here. Right. I don't, I can't read Japanese and it is printed in Japanese, but even the printing is black on black. So I don't even know if I would be able to read it. Most of the English speaking world refers to that record as live to PSF 1516, which was the index number for it. And just say song one, two or three. That's just how people call those songs. Let's hear song four.
What is it you like about that song? What's going on in that song? That's Fushitsusha. Um, yeah. Fourth song from the first disc of Live 2, PSF 15 stroke 16. That's it. That's just trips off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's actually the quietest song on the record. And I mean, the whole record has a lot of atmosphere, but that one in particular uh, is really gorgeous with his vocals, those choral vocals. And when the guitar comes in, it just really kind of splits it open a bit. After that bass, it's just kind of moving around for a long time at the beginning. Um, I just think it's a gorgeous song. So really, I hadn't, I hadn't heard it in a few years and I thought about it with, um, with us doing this and I went back and I listened to it and yeah, I got goosebumps and I was reminded how great it is. So it passes the goosebumps test. It does. Which is great. Goosebumps brings me to the subject of what we here at the Schwepp in the scientific study of the history of ideas like to call the oogly boogly. Um, (laughs) So esoteric material, occultist material, other stuff that's maybe harder to categorize, but you kind of know it when you see it. I'm thinking of, for example, the works of Henri Corbin, people like this. And this stuff is really important to you, yeah? This is, this is it seems to me, somehow the language that you think in, um, both musically and kind of more generally. You're, you're quite, I know you're quite into Corbin. I mean, yeah, I read, with someone like that, you can read him many different ways. So mm-hmm. I read him as, you know, I'm on the side that reads him as, one of the last of the, the true romantic writers. I read him more in terms of imagination in a post Coleridge sort of way. And, you know, I, even though his, he's, even though obviously there's a lot of history, uh, esoteric Islam and stuff, but I tend, it, well, I should say when I first read him, I thought, oh, I'm getting, this is, he's telling me exactly what, uh, you know, I'm getting a straight history here of what's going on. And then as you read him, as you read about him, you realize, oh, he's, he's got an angle and he is yeah. like a rebel Protestant. And that's how he's reading all of this stuff. Yeah. So it takes a while, but that's, you know, how I read him now. Corbin, very dangerous if read as a, a neutral historian. But he yes. never claims to be a neutral historian. So, no, you know, no. fair dues. Yeah. And um, a lot, he gets a lot of hate from neutral historians or people who aspire to be that because maybe a bit like Jung, you know, there's a lot of right. profundity in his writings, but his followers tend to be a bunch of doofuses or <laughs> not tend to be, let's say sometimes are doofuses. Right. You, uh, you can read it. You can read that as a doofus. Right. Mm. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he was my gateway almost to any of even to Western esotericism, because when I first started reading him, I thought it was just this complete, when he's talking about the imagination, I thought, oh, this is all great. This is wonderful. Uh, I guess it's only in this world of Sufis and this particular religion has their own They've got a cornerstone on how this goes down. Then realizing, no, through the imagination, this is actually, um, this became the key to being more interested in Western esotericism in general, realizing how it corresponds. Um, Yeah. The roots of that faculty of inner imaging, 
the fantasia in Greek, which you find in really fairly standard Islamic accounts of how human beings think, right, from the Middle Ages. And of course, in people like Suhravardi, um, Ibn Sina, all these guys, goes back to Aristotle. And everyone does different things with it, but it, it's really an Aristotelian idea. So it's, it's Western, and it's no wonder that it's in all the Abrahamic um, schools right. of thought, at least insofar as they have a, a kind of an attempt at a scientific anthropology, a scientific understanding of how humans, how human cognition works. But right. when you get into these more visionary sides of things, like with a Jacob Burma or a Paracelsus or a Suhravardi, it becomes um, valorized highly. Like maybe imagination isn't just how you uh, interpret sense perceptions and make them into a movie inside your head, but maybe it's also a way of seeing higher things because everyone has to account for dreams and everyone has to account for prophecy and visions and, and veridical stuff that appears to you. Right. I mean, and also he was writing right at a time when phenomenology was really hitting hard. He was the first one to translate Heidegger in French into French. And it just really dovetails, I mean, his, with his, with the interest in phenomenology with esoteric and exoteric, um, especially something like Heidegger's phenomenology, which is like, oh, it's revealed, but it's also hidden as it's being revealed, you know, um, that sort of thing. You could see how all of it, how it would just bubble up in his mind and just making these connections and everything. Um, I'm just speaking of how his writing beyond just the, the historicals, as uh, you know. Mm. Historically, though, you know, Corbin, this, what you were saying earlier about scenes uh, is really, really a, a beautiful way of looking at this because there's no one of his school, right? He doesn't have a school. There's no Corbanian school. I mean, unless there are some people who consider themselves Corbanians in some way, but he had nothing to do with that. That's just them riffing on his stuff. But he's, he says, he never says he's a traditionalist, even though he's hanging out right. with all these people who do. Right. Um, he's not a Sufi. He's, he's, not, he's his own guy. But he, who's he hanging out with? Gershom Sholem, Mircea Eliade, Carl Jung, um, Gilles Kispel, like all these big name, really influential Western esoteric right. thinkers, stroke scholars, people with a foot in each camp. Um, yeah. So that scene is unbelievably important historically, you know, as has now been oh. beginning to be documented. Oh yeah. The Aronos group, like those guys, the amount of influence they had over uh, culture you know, afterwards from, you know, new age to, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you could even, I mean, wasn't DT Suzuki part of the Aronos group? I, I, th I think he was. Yeah. I, I think he was part of that. And then we can go back to cage because that's where cage got uh, uh, many ideas. That's where he started getting into Buddhism. So wow. even if you, we can make a draw a direct line back to, you know, John cage, okay. just from Aronos and like the map, if somebody drew a map, with you know three-dimensional map of through lines of everything you know that Aronos had I mean I think and who doesn't fantasize about going to a Swiss lake and hanging out with a bunch of cool people and just riffing and talking about stuff you know yeah I yeah. think there's you know it's a pretty romantic idea um, 
you could also draw a line to much more pop culture stuff like um, Star Wars. So oh, yeah. uh, George Lucas, when trying to find the sort of epic, ultimate essence of an epic hero journey story, went and chatted right. with this guy, Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell is right. like the next generation Aronos, yeah. uh, sort of quasi-Jungian guy. So he's got these archetype ideas and he's like talking about stories and narrative from the deep wells of the human unconscious or whatever. And that gets put directly on the Hollywood oh, yeah. screen and influences yeah. like everyone for three generations or whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, and this is, I am also just to put it out there fully aware of, you know, uh, like some of the, some of the more uh, scary aspects of some of those guys, you know, with Eliad and, and, and things, but yeah. I'm just speaking on purely it's very fascinating how much influence some of those guys had um, or as a group, just getting together and talking over, over culture afterwards. Yeah. You know? All right. So what's your next track? Next track would be uh, a band called Silver Jews with a song called Random Rules. In 1984, I was hospitalized for approaching perfection. Slowly screwing my way. They had to make a correction Broken and smoking where the infrared deer plunge in the digital snake I tell you they make it so you can't shake hands When they make your hand shake I know you like to line dance Everything's so democratic and cool But baby, there's no guidance when random rules I know that a lot of what I say has been lifted off of men's room walls Maybe I crossed the wrong rivers and walked down all the wrong halls but nothing can change the fact that we used to share a bed And that's why it scared me so when you turned to me and said Yeah, you look like someone Yeah, you look like someone who up and left me
Steve, it's because people leaving no highway will bring them back. So if you don't want me, I promise not to linger. But before I go, I've gotta ask you, dear, about that tan line on your ring finger. No one should have two lives. Now you know my middle names are wrong and right, honey. We've got two lives to give tonight. To give tonight. To give tonight. Oh 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 oh. So that was the Silver Jews with Random Rules. I I think maybe that's some kind of esoteric nod to Sholem's work on Kabbalah and uh, Eranos somehow. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah. The singer, um, you know, David Berman, he has a theory behind. I don't know exactly what it's referencing, but he has his own. Uh, I have read where he's like, "Oh no, this is a reference. This I'm talking about. I consider myself." The Silver Jew, because it's uh, it's a reference to something that he is uh, he's referencing something. Okay, so I was I was just joking, but this really is some kind of esoteric Judaism yeah. thing. It is, yeah, yeah. And yeah. what is it about this song that you find compelling? For one, I just thought it would be really great to play um, a song that David Berman wrote on uh, the Schwepp. It tickled me, and I wanted to do it because I love his songwriting so much. But also, as I said before. Uh, I don't get tired of the song, so I thought it'd be a good one to have on an island, you know. Kind of like the town song, it seems to have a lot to do with fate as well. Um, talking about um, there's no guidance and there's random rules. and um, That's a little more adrift, um, thinking that you can't even get guidance in a chaotic world. But um, yeah, I just think he's an amazing songwriter. Again, he's he's definitely... Um, he might be a little more on the poet side. We were talking about poets, the poet visionary continuum and where they fall in town. So he, I, he, I would, if we speak of being visionary in the esoteric sense, not just like the vision, I would put him more on the poetic side, probably. Right. Um, more of a craftsman yeah. with words than a, exactly. a, a raging yeah. um, receptacle yeah. for otherworldly knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Now... <laughs> Speaking of otherworldly knowledge, your esoteric island discs are about to get seriously esoteric. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you about Hexatic Composition, a project of yours that's that you've put out. What is it? How's it work? Tell us about it. Hmm. It was a way to sort of compose music by using a deck of cards, which is very basic on the surface level, but then has more and more complex rules that make it specific to its own system, you know, mostly dealing with clusters of six notes together. Although in, you can, you can really tweak it how you want. So that's why it's an open system and it's more meant to come up with parameters of what you could compose. It's not an algorithm that specifically tells you what to play. Gotcha. So it's not serialism. Like that kind of 
taking right. a, taking okay. a random sort of randomized algorithm and just being like the only notes we are going to play will be right. all 12 tones in some randomized order and we're going to stick with that and see what happens it's not that right but it's close because it's as if you took that and you said because it does have you are dealing with 12 tones like i said you can twist it so imagine that but less um it's less demanding there's not as much of a rule. Imagine serialism, but then saying like, or, you know, or not. Okay. It's, it's basically serialism or, you know, or not. That's right. kind of how it goes. So you might make a concession to something that just sounds nice, for example, which you cannot do with, in serialism. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, yeah. But yeah. Mm, let's say the serialism, instead of, instead of dealing with 12 notes in serialism and saying like, here's the order um, that you're going to have these things. It would be more, let's pick out randomly some notes from the 12 and then you can play what you want from those notes. And this is done with just a deck of cards. And I wanted to do it with just any deck of cards because um, in this way, if you were writing music, you can usually find a deck of cards anywhere. So you could just go and then you have a device and it's not something you need to, have from me or whatever. It's not like a marketed thing. Yeah. So I did make my own deck of cards just for fun. Cool. And can we find that on your website? Um, no, I need to get them back out there. I've got, they're in my closet right now. Okay. So I need to get them back out there in the world. Um, I do, I have, I have some for you. They're right there in a pile, um, with a book. So I will be sending you one. Thank you very much. You've got, and you've got not only your own hexatic compositions out there, but um, other people are doing it as well and sending you tracks, right? They're, they're kind of like checking out your system, experimenting with it and going, hey, Ben, this is, I came up with this on the old hexatic tip. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, some people done that. And then we did a record where there were other musicians. Um, there were three hexatic records. And I did all the music on the first two. Um, yeah, and then the third one, other people. Cool. Now... Any particular reason why six? Well, I, it's interesting. Mathematically, it just ended up being six. The system just ended up being six because I was dealing with three octaves, 12 notes per octave. You get 36, which you can very easily divide by six. And then you get, you know, six hexachords or whatever. So, and then it just made sense. I'm like, oh, ha, ha, ha and six organs of admittance. So just one of those things where it came together. Hmm. And and people can run with it in whatever kind of uh, arithmological ways they want. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't say I was like, I'm not trying to probe the mysteries of the number six, but things did keep aligning with the number six. So Hmm. to me, it was pleasing. It's interesting in, um, in geometry, if you're doing ornamental geometry, like the sort of thing you see in a mosque, you know what I mean? Like Islamicate uh, geometric design. Six is the most versatile, seemingly. Hmm. Sixfold uh, division. Five and seven and ten. Seven and ten, or five and ten, are amazing, and you get loads of really cool golden section symmetries and stuff, huh. but way harder to work with. And six is easiest to work with i think and also communicates better with fourfold and threefold and other folds than the fives mm. and and tens so six is like 
the bread and butter of, of right. Islamic geometric design and European geometric design too. If you look at like cathedral windows and stuff like this, you very often see six-fold designs. I didn't know that. That's crazy. Now, your next track is heavy. This is Ascension by John Coltrane. Yeah. That's okay. a heavy tune.
Ascension, John Coltrane. We have Freddie Hubbard on trumpet. Um, Pharaoh Sanders on tenor saxophone. Archie Shep on tenor saxophone. John Coltrane on tenor saxophone. <laughs> and uh, McCoy Tyner on piano, of course. Elvin Jones on drums with that incredibly tasteful yet incredibly amazing inspired drum style what is it about this track that blows your mind well specifically to hang out on an island you know by yourself and to be able to be alone with that song i think you could do many things i think i think you could you could go it becomes an adventure you could go along with them follow people follow the 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 signals to each other, um, the solos um, coming back together, the build-up and the bringing back down. I mean, it's just it's one of the it's it's just such a great piece because when you first hear it, when I first heard it anyway, it just sounds like a wall. Like, what is happening? And just the more you listen to it, the more you hear the communication and the things happening back and forth. And um, yeah, it's just such a beautiful piece. Actually, and that, that reminds me of something um, musician Jim O'Rourke said once about recording and um, especially recording improvised music like that. That's one, it's one advantage recordings have over a live performance, which you don't hear that a lot of people talking about re- the advantage of recording over a live performance, something like that. But it allows you to go back and listen to those pieces that you didn't hear and you missed. It, and there's just so much information and communication going on that you can go back and listen to it and participate in that and you know hear the hear it. so yeah and i i would imagine that would be a exhilarating ride on an island hmm. and it's ascension so it's in potentially it's a way to get off the island without actually leaving the island if you see what yeah. i mean yeah absolutely absolutely yeah 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 <laughs> now your next track is an interesting one tell us about this one uh henry flint you are my ever loving I believe that, yeah, I think that's a tape loop of a tambora that he's playing over. That's how I've heard it. Maybe it's something else, but I, I think he's playing violin over a tape loop of a tambora.
This guy, Henry Flint, I, again, I have to confess my unhipness that I've, I've not checked him out before. I don't know if he's before. a very hip, hip dude, to tell you the truth. He's, he's pretty, uh, yeah, he's, he's pretty underground. Interesting guy, though, eh? He's, he's into his kind of like Appalachian roots fiddle stylings, and, but not at all concerned about keeping it traditional. Like, let's play it over a tape loop of a tambura and just go crazy for 45 minutes. Yeah, kind of stuff. it with avant-garde sensibilities and he was hanging out with the new york underground folks um i think uh he even sat in with the velvet underground for i don't know how many nights whatever i think lou reed showed him a few moves on the guitar so he was part of that crew um john kale and tony conrad but then he also had his whole uh, philosophy side which is very math based which means that I immediately will not understand a single. I am not math based at all. So I have not even attempted to go there. Um, but yeah, plus just an artist. Yeah, he's a pretty fascinating dude. Hmm. Okay, we're about to move on to your seventh and final disc. But before we do, on the Esoteric Island, I'm going to give you uh, the complete Corpus Hermeticum and the, com- <laughs> and the complete works of John Dee. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you can have a book of your own choice. What will that be? Oh, one book. Wow. One book. Oh man, I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. I. <laughs> that is a tricky one. One book. Mm. I'll have to come back to that. All right, can we can I, come back to that. I don't know. Um, but how do you think you're going to cope? How do I think I'm going to cope? Just you and your music. And Hermes. Yeah. <laughs> Causing trouble <laughs> on the island. Um, you'll do all right. I think I'll be fine. Yeah, I think it'll be... I mean, everyone dreams about going to this island, but, you know, once you're there, after a few years, you probably want to get off. But, um, yeah, hopefully the music will carry me through hmm. in the books and the angels. Yeah, okay. Angels, yeah. I mean, it might be well be like Prospero's Island from The Tempest, you know. <laughs> where there's all kinds of spirits flying around and stuff like that. Oh, so you have company. You do have company. Well, you might do. It depends on your metaphysical stance, right? It's an esoteric yeah. island, so there could be all manner. There's just no other people. That's the, the main right. thing. Right, right. And do you have tools on the island well, to talk to the non-people? Do you have... Do you have I think you you'd have, have to make them, but you do get uh, the option of a single luxury item to make your life more comfortable. Oh. You could just say, I want an espresso maker, but you could also say, I want a... Uh, Some wax. Book of, yeah, like a book of conjurations or something like that. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So what would your uh, luxury item be? Oh, luxury item. Do I have a blanket already? Because I'd really like to have a blanket. Does that count as my luxury item? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it does. Okay. I do love a good blanket. Okay. Are we thinking <laughs> like, gonna... like a nice feather duvet or something like that? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. On the sand? Yeah. That's wild. That's some wild times. Heavy duvet on the sand. <laughs> All right. So, your seventh and final disc, and why? This would be Carlos Paredes, who was a, a guitar player from Portugal, who played a Portuguese guitar. It's a special style of guitar. And um, I would choose this because the melody itself is just one of the most beautiful melodies ever. I just love it, and I love Carlos Paredes. All right. Carlos Paredes, Verdes Años.
Verdes Años by Carlos Paredes. I probably mispronounced that. Uh, sorry, Portuguese speakers. I only oh, know Spanish. Every time I'm in Portugal, they always correct me on it. They say, you've been here for 15 years. You you come, You come. still can't pronounce his name? I say, I, there's just some names I can't pronounce. Um, he is a Portuguese national treasure. So I imagine people take a certain amount of umbrage if you if you don't recognize his greatness. But okay, you do recognize his greatness. You just mispronounce his name a little bit. Um, We're used to it now, I know. Me, me mispronouncing his name. So yeah. We'll give you, the we'll the give you Portuguese pass. guitar is quite a cool and weird instrument. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's um, It has like a double sets of strings. It has really cool tuners as well. Yeah, it's a really, in a lot of the Carlos Paredes uh, songs, there's a more traditional guitar player. Got it. As well, kind of yeah. doing accompaniment. And he was just, he was just a really cool person. He was a nurse his entire life. He never, yeah. even though he was super famous for his music, he never stopped being a nurse um, and just wanted to continue that sort of work. He was jailed for a while because he was part of the Communist Party during a fascist regime yeah. in Portugal. That's part of the reason why he's a bit of a national treasure because he's, he stuck to his guns and was composing while he was jailed. And But you don't, you can do all that stuff. And if you're not playing really, really beautiful music or something that touches people, then it's not really. So that, I think that's the key, you know, he's a really good composer. Mm. And a great player as well, which is, you'd often yeah. don't find both together, you know, sometimes. Gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And he was friends with uh, Charlie Hayden. Um, they did a record together, Charlie Hayden, the bass player who played with Ornette Coleman. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a video on YouTube. It's about half an hour long and it's, Carlos Paredes and Charlie Hayden hanging out and like basically being on tour and going around. And it's super cool. And they did one record together as well. That is amazing. We'll definitely yeah. get to that. Yeah. Carlos, he was just a cool guy. He was just super cool. I was introduced to him because when I first started going to Portugal, people knew I was a John Fahey fan. He's right. like, oh, you like Fahey, you have to hear basically the Fahey of Portugal. And then I was like, oh, this is like, yeah, this is really, really cool. So Ben Chesney... You're about to be cast away on the esoteric island. You'll have your seven tracks, the Corpus Hermeticum and the complete works of John D. I wonder if you want to, before we cast you away, choose a book or forever hold your peace. Just give me the Bible. The Bible? You can have the Bible. King James translation? Any preference? Um, yeah, considering I don't know anything but the King James translation, uh, you can just give me that one. All right. Consider it done. You've got your blanket, you've got your books, you've got seven tracks. If if of these seven tracks, you could save just one disc from the waves, which disc would it be? That's a good one. Um, just one, I would probably save the... It's a toss-up between Morton Feldman and John Coltrane. Um, but I'd probably save the Coltrane. Because I just realized everything I cho- chose except for Fuchsia Susha were singular people except for that Coltrane. The Coltrane has the most amount of people. I think I would like to hear the, you know, joyous communication, I think would be a pretty nice thing to yeah, listen to. Especially in the lonely, deserted uh, confines of the esoteric island. Ben Chesney, thank you for sharing with us your esoteric island discs. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.